You're listening to Badass Ladyfolk, a podcast about socially engaged women and NB femmes kicking buns big and small. I'm your host, Christine Sloan Stoddard. That badass intro music came from the song Talking Hands by Toxic Moxie. As I mentioned the last couple of episodes, this is a reboot of my Radio Free Brooklyn show, The Badass Lady Folk of Brooklyn. Now, Quail Bell Press and Productions is producing this podcast for and about incredible women and non-binary femmes from around the world. You can still find episodes of The Badass Lady Folk of Brooklyn online. And you can find out more about the show on the Radio Free Brooklyn website. I'll drop links in the show notes for you. This whole episode is going to be full of show notes, so get ready. This episode, my guest is poet and translator Catherine Young. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you so much, Christine. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, so happy to have you. Now for some bio time so folks know who you are if they don't already. Catherine E. Young is the author of two full-length poetry collections, Woman Drinking Absinthe, Day of the Border Guards, and two chapbooks. She is the editor of Written in Arlington and curator of Spoken in Arlington. Her poems have appeared so many places, the Iowa Review and Subtropics and uh, Prairie Schooner and many others. She is a translator of Look at Him by Anna Starobinets, Farewell, Ailis by Azerbaijani political prisoner Akram Alisli. <laughs> and two poetry collections by Ina Kabish. I tried, I really tried folks. Young's translations of contemporary Russian language poetry and prose have won international awards. Several translations have been made into short films. From 2016 to 2018, she served as the inaugural Poet Laureate for Arlington, Virginia, my hometown. So, Dear listeners, I've been living in Brooklyn for a few years now, but I still maintain ties to Arlington, and that's how I found out about Catherine and her work. My friend, Ben Nardalili, another native Arlingtonian living in Brooklyn, also a poet, also a Quail Bell magazine contributor, forwarded me Catherine's call for the Written in Arlington anthology. I submitted a few poems, a couple were accepted, bada bing, bada boom, now they're in the book. Catherine, could you give readers a sense of what this book is and what response it's gotten in Arlington, Virginia, and maybe even beyond? Thank you, Christine. So Written in Arlington is a dual concept. It's a book, a printed book. It's also um, a, a digital archive of poetry in Arlington, and that's called Spoken in Arlington. You can find that on YouTube. Um, the book contains approximately 150 poems. Wow. Written by, yeah. It, uh, it, <laughs> well, and what's really interesting is when I started the collection, I knew of exactly four poems about Arlington, Virginia. So I was pretty happy when we got 150. Um, by 87 different poets, um, and they were originally written in four different languages, including Hindi, Spanish, Russian, and then English. Um, and some of our uh, writers are writing in their second or even third language. Um, so it's really, it's like our community, it's really multinational and multicultural. Um, and the idea was to bring in not just, you know, page poets or uh, poets of a certain demographic, um, the idea was to kind of get it in the grant that I got from Arlington County to do it was part of the, the condition of the grant. One of the conditions of the grant was that it needed to build community. So I wanted to go beyond, you know, just people who normally write poems for books. And I ended up with poems. Uh, the youngest poet is a high school student at uh, one of our local high schools. And we have poetry from uh, people who were serving time in the Arlington Detention Center. We have teachers, we have healthcare workers, we have, um, you know, a whole range of people, a whole, whole range of styles of poetry. We have a couple of people who are primarily spoken word and performance artists, and they have poems in the book as well, as well as uh, they have video clips on the YouTube uh, channel. Neat. You know, it just occurs to me that some of our listeners might not have any understanding of Arlington, Virginia. Could they take a virtual trip by reading this book and sort of what would their experience be? 
So I think they could. And just for anybody who is still a little unsure of Arlington, Virginia, it is the community. It is a county. It is directly across the river from Washington, D.C., across the Potomac River. You may have heard of Arlington National Cemetery. That's how most people know our county. The Iwo Jima Memorial is in Arlington County and the Pentagon is in Arlington County. Um, so those are the big things that most people outside of the area know. But it was a small rural county. Um, it was originally actually drawn on the map as part of the District of Columbia, but it was split off in the 19th century. And it, it was a small rural community, mostly uh, at first it was plantations and then it was farms up until almost just the Second World War when we suddenly had a population explosion as a result of the building of the Pentagon. So um, as a community, uh, it's been very small until relatively recently. And you still, you know, you can talk to people and you, it's very rare to find somebody like you who was born in Arlington and still <laughs> living in Arlington. It's a lot of people coming in because it's so close to DC. People come in for a few years, they do something connected to the federal government, and then they might go somewhere else. So we tend to think of ourselves as a bedroom community, but in fact, we have a lot of history, including the plantation, which is now part of Arlington Cemetery, but that was in the hands of Robert E. Lee, and, and it was taken from the Lee family after the Civil War to make the cemetery and to make sure that the Lee family would not return and live in the house. So we do have... Um, uh, uh, history and a lot of it actually going back, but because so many of us are so transient, uh, we don't know that much about it. I came here in the 80s, but it wasn't until I was poet laureate and had to had to write poems about Arlington that I did a deep dive into the archives to see what, what we had here. And boy, was I surprised. Yeah, definitely. I have heard and read that millennials were just very different in regards to Arlington because in large part because of the Obama administration, just attracting people from across the country. But then people like me who were born there, raised there, went to high school there, actually many of them came back after college to work for the administration or, or to get involved with things that were, were just there and they wanted to live in Clarendon. They wanted to live in Boston because it was cheaper than DC. <laughs> it is a very progressive community. It is a community that's, that's increasingly urban. We have a, one of the Metro lines runs from DC runs through here. So there's a lot of development along the Metro lines and it's really uh, urban and, and, um, and it's, it's interesting because it's, it's also, you know, the traditional bedroom communities with a, with a house on, a, you know, a plot of land sort of thing. It's also a very green community, lots of parks, lots of trees. Um, it's, it, and it's not a cookie, it's not cookie cutter developments as some of the ones that are further, further out. So you asked me if people who weren't from the area could learn something or could, could get a sense of the area. They can because there are poems about the local you know, hardware store or um, some of the libraries, some of the schools. Um, and there are poems also that, that are, they're written by people who live here, but they're about eternal things. They're about, you know, inheriting their mom's, you know, uh, kitchen gear or thinking about the passage of the seasons. There were uh, so many poems about foxes submitted to this anthology that I couldn't take them all, which makes me really sad because I really love foxes. Um, <laughs> and, and of course, being on the Potomac River um, where the Native Americans lived before, you know, Europeans came up this way. There's tons of bird life, there's tons of animal life, and the poems, to much sort of to my surprise, um, there's a lot about the natural landscape. Um, and so, so, yeah, you really can get a sense of, of who we are and, and you know, what are, we, there are a lot of poems about history. Um, one of the things that Arlington is known for in the state of Virginia is we were the first county to open our schools um, in, after the segregation era, and we had a very peaceful uh, and I think, I think largely positive experience of integrating our schools. I grew up in a part of Virginia where it was totally the opposite. Public schools were closed for four years. So, um, so for me, that part of Arlington history is particularly interesting. But we also have a wall that still exists that was built to segregate white community, uh, one white community from a black community. And that's still here too. Wow. Readers, you can order the book from Amazon and directly from the publisher, Peacock Press. I'll drop links in the show notes. Like I said, those notes are going to be long this time. Get ready. Catherine, could you give our listeners a taste of the book by reading one of your own poems from it? I would be delighted. This poem is called Columbia Pike Blues, and it was written for the Columbia Pike Blues Festival, which is an annual festival we have here. Um, and this one was written for the 2017 festival. I will say I 
did a lot of research to write this poem and literally everything that is in this poem is specific to Arlington. But I want to say a word about Columbia Pike, which is, it was for many, many years, the only road directly from the United States to the from capital in Washington to the south of this country. So when you think about, you know, the troops marching out for the Civil War, they all marched down Columbia Pike, that it is an absolutely, uh, it, it's an original uh, turnpike in this country's history and it's, uh, it's, the history is incredibly rich. So Columbia Pike Blues, what is it that we want from our roads? To cart tobacco to port, raw grain to mill, cattle to abattoir. To take us out in the morning, crossing footpaths made by others, past clay forts turned to brickworks, where a man and a woman born enslaved are buying supplies for the first brick townhouse. To take us to the river, the ferry, the bridge, the school, the store, diner, theater, botanica, iglesia, taqueria, to lead us back home. You have to sit a spell in a place to capture its full flavor, to watch from your front porch as the roads straightened and smoothed, see the couple from Barcroft throttle the bus gamely uphill, watch abandoned pastures sprout radio towers to talk with Paris, Thrust up garden apartment blocks where bachelors starch clean uniforms for tomorrow's shift at the Pentagon. Embrace a church, rebuild a school, bury a loved one in its soil. You have to listen to a place a long time to hear its blues. Forest to farm, hills sown with stones, Friedman's village, Queen City paved to park cars. Streetcars falter, no longer leave the lot. Metro junctions gape empty, the line unbuilt. Even the porches are long gone now. And always, the quiet padding of feet from longhouses by the river, as the ghosts of the land's first settlers carve out new trails up ahead. Thank you. You already discussed a little bit of what you encountered in working on this book, but could you talk a little bit more about your actual process for editing and how it related to your work as Poet Laureate of Arlington? Sure. Um, I think I said when I, when I started this project, I applied for it, I knew of four poems about Arlington and three of them were ones that I had written as Poet Laureate. So I really, really didn't know what was out there. Um, but we have a really strong and large, and I should say also supportive community of poets, not just in the Arlington area, but in the general DC area. Um, we tend to support each other really well. And we had for many years, a long running poetry series in Arlington uh, run by a local poet uh, that brought people not just from local communities, but nationally, Miles Davids Moore is at, um, at the uh, Iota Bar and Club, bar, bar and Restaurant, I think. Um, in any case, so I, we, I knew we had that resource and I put out the call and I was staggered. There are poems here from people who are currently living in New Zealand. There are <laughs> poems here from, from a poet who lives in Novosibirsk in Siberia. His family happened to be here for a couple of years while somebody was going to grad school. There are poets from um, Heather McHugh, who lives out in the Seattle area, poems from, from a poem from her, um, poems, poems from poets who live all over the country. And because Arlington's transient, they came here for a while. Um, Andy Fogel up in New York uh, was here for a while. Um, so we just have just a huge selection of, of uh, amazing poets, who a lot of whom I didn't know. Um, and I was so excited. I did send out, I did make a point of reaching out to some communities um, uh, I, I visited a lot of local reading series just to make announcements to say this thing was going to happen. Can you, can you send punk poems? And I had a longstanding relationship with a couple of people in the, a couple of the high schools where I would, you know, talk to the poetry club coordinator or whatever and say, you know, have you got kids with work that, that might work? And I'm really, really happy that we, we have that wide range of, of poetry here. Yeah, that's wonderful. And you've already had a few different media appearances, virtual events, 
uh, all kinds of things going on related to written in Arlington, including live from Diane's living room. Listeners, this is a YouTube show hosted by Diane Kresh, director of the Arlington County Libraries. And Catherine was kind enough to invite me as well as poets Heather Davis, Jacqueline Jules, and Miles David Moore to read some of our work from Britain in Arlington and discuss poetry more generally. Catherine, are there other virtual events, media appearances, anything else going on? There are. And in fact, in April National Poetry Month, I am leading a four-part course as part of the uh, Encore Learning Series here in Arlington. It's called Written in Arlington, Arlington Poets and Poems. Um, and we're going to read some poems and invite some poets in. And then we're going to ask people to write their own poems. Um, so if there's somebody out there collecting work for the next Arlington Anthology, uh, we'll, I hope we'll generate some. We also have some readings coming up um, in, in June um, and um, later on in July. So around the area. Um, and, and there's always there's always somebody calling or asking, you know, can can you get some poets together and and and, and read to my group? So it's really it's an exciting thing. Of course, the whole purpose of what we had hoped to do, if had we not been in a pandemic here, um, was to have a giant, basically party open mic sort of thing um, when the anthology came out, and have as many as of the or, uh, poets. And we have you know of the hunt of the eighty seven poets, we have roughly forty still in the Arlington area. And have as many of them as possible come and just read um, but you know we're gonna we keep putting it off and putting it off maybe by this the year one year anniversary which will be in next november uh, we can we can do that thing because i think you know having the poets all together I, maybe i don't i mean you did the virtual event i find that just fascinating to talk mm -hmm. to the other people and get their perspectives on why they wrote this poem this way you know and and they're and we all live in this tiny little community. It's the smallest county in the continental United States, right? It's only 26 square miles. We all kind of know each other, but we have such different takes on, on what it's like to live here. Yeah, I think I really credit you for this whole project. It's an amazing idea. And I think it could serve as a model for all kinds of communities across the country. Let's all celebrate poetry, celebrate where we live, explore where we live also have a critical lens about where we live, <laughs> make new friends through poetry. Yeah, let's do it. Not just in Arlington, everywhere. Okay. No, I, so. I totally agree with that. And, and the other thing is, I mean, there are poet laureate jobs that are just about putting out this kind of an anthology. And I mean, you know, when you're sitting in your room, like this, this was coming together last March and April, right? When you're sitting in your room, a pandemic, staring at a pandemic, and all you want to do is be with other people. And you can't do that but you can read this book and you can, you know, read these kinds of books and get a sense of, you know, what somebody else sees in, in the, the quarter hardware store or whatever it is. Yeah, definitely. Speaking of the pandemic, you've been really busy. <laughs> you have a lot to promote. So not just one book, but three books in 2020 and 2021. The next one uh, that we'll discuss is Woman Drinking Absinthe, a poetry collection from Alan Squire Publishing. It's officially out March 1st, but hey, that's close enough. It's available now. Uh, here's an excerpt from the book's description. The mood is Paris, the morning after a debauch, bitter hot chocolate, a croissant, and a strong aftertaste of the previous night. The setting is Art Nouveau with its ornament and excess. The playlist is Debussy, Ravel, Stravinsky, and Puccini. Although we are firmly in the city, there is a whiff of the forest's folktales and monsters, bears, and bluebeard. Ah, I'm intrigued. So why don't you give us some more poetry? Why don't you give us a sampling of poems from Woman Drinking Absinthe? All right. So the first one is Bar at the Folie Bergère, which is a painting by Edouard Manet. Um, and I understand you're going to put the links in, in for yeah. that painting so everybody can, can check that out. Um, what should I say about the painting? One of the things about the painting is we know for a fact that the woman who is depicted in the painting is the actual woman who worked at the bar. In other words, uh, Manet got her to come over and pose for the painting. And the other thing I should say about the painting is uh, there is a, a glass dish of oranges and there is some speculation in art history uh, circles that whenever Manet put oranges in a painting, it was an indication of prostitution. So I will okay. leave that there. 
bar at the Folie Berger. It starts with the scent of lavender as she buttons clean pantaloons, laces up stays, smooths her bodice and shakes out the frills, ties the black ribbon about her neck. Her costume smells, as they all do, mingled sweat and makeup, the fabric itself splashed perhaps with the licorice twist of absinthe. Then come powder and rouge, the small earrings, a pink and white corsage already starting to droop. Her props are placed on view, beer bottles, champagne, a vase containing two pale roses, cut glass bowl of oranges that may or may not indicate a certain kind of availability. Leaning against the marble bar, she doesn't look at you. Why should she look at you? Can you give her what she needs or even cab fare home? Posing perhaps, or perhaps beyond posing, her face bleak, artificially rosy amid the moon pale globes and crystals shimmering in the ersatz heaven of the cabaret. Perhaps a man inspects her in the glass. Perhaps he's looking past. Neither of them seems to see the woman on the trapeze, feet squeezed into ankle boots of lizard green. Later, she observes his red-gold lashes, watches his still young face slacken in sleep, breathes in his scent of cigars, cheap brandy, scent that clings to her fingers like orange oil as she works her nails beneath the skin, methodically stripping the pith to find whatever's left of the fruit's sweet flesh. Ooh, such a mood. Okay, next one. Next one is called Bluebeard. And this, of course, is also based on the French fairy tale of the uh, monster who kept the corpses of the wives he murdered behind a locked door. And then he'd bring in a new woman and hand her the key, expecting her to unlock the door. Um, Bluebeard. His beard was blue, but not so very blue. So when he handed me his keys and warned me not to try the littlest one, I fingered the scrolls that curled along its bow, its tiny nape and teeth, and hung it from a silk ribbon above my heart. I tidied the rooms while he was gone, oiling the other locks, their keys. So what if I tripped over objects in the gloom, sent them spinning toward dim corners? Of course they weren't bones. As for the iron sweet scent of blood in the air, it must have been my own. Besides, a woman needn't fear blood or bones, touch stones she's learned to reckon by. How else could she simmer stock from her body's blossom, coax fresh new growth from the very marrow of life? At last, he returned roaring through the door, tearing cloth and wire to free the key dangling between my breasts, sniff it suspiciously, oddly arousing his pouting, disappointed mouth. Mm. And the last poem I'm going to read tonight is a little sonnet called African Violets. And as we're recording at the end of February, it seems appropriate yeah african violets february ushers in winter's rain teasing the boxwoods the trellis roses nodding in the yard a lonely crocus raises its head unable to refrain despite lingering snow silvery scrim mantling the sun house plants sink into melancholy Recline swooning on window frames cracked and swollen from the heat within. Early mornings, I tend them, sprinkle cool water on their petals. Their parched, pale leaves nuzzle against my hand. Like young children, like new lovers, they've no better sense than to seek my caress. They must believe in old wives' tales, promise 
of renewal. Beautiful. Now, I believe you have a story to share about the first poem. I do. The bar at the Folie Bergère. I love the story so much. Um, the poem, I was asked to come to um, a, do a one-night residency at the Wa Washington Shakespeare Theater. And the reason they, they were doing residencies um, was they were doing a play in meter. It was a, uh, an updated version of a play from, I believe, the 1730s. And so it was a... Uh, a period piece, right? And they decided that they would have a poet come in and be the poet in the house every night. And you would sit in the lobby during intermission and write poems and talk to people about poetry. It was so cool. But part the other part of the job was after the show was over, you had to write a poem and post it um, online for anybody who had bought a ticket the night before by like eight the next morning. So you had basically, you know, 10, 12 hours to write a poem. And, um, I did it, I did it twice. And the second poem was, I thought maybe one of the worst poems I'd ever written and pushing that button the next morning to send out that poem just made me sick to my stomach. But this was the poem, the Bar at the Polybergere was the poem that I wrote the first night. And I, it just kind of flowed. And, you know, I'm the kind of poet who will spend literally 10 years trying to figure out one or two words in a poem so it won't be finished for 10 years. This poem was finished in like 10 hours and I never changed a single word. And that's just like magic. It's like a meteor striking. And, and I mean, that doesn't happen to me as a poet. And so I, it makes me so happy to, that this poem um, has made it into the book. Yeah. Could you talk about the concept and structure behind the book? Yeah, the book is, um, it hits a lot of different things. And it, I, it, it maybe has sort of its uh, impetus from 19th late 19th century French artistic culture. I mean, you could tell from some of the poems. Um, but it's more the story of a relationship and um, to tell the story of the relationships or a set of relationships and to tell the story of those relationships. I didn't want to do, I mean, a like real housewives of whatever concept. <laughs> I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't want a reality thing. I wanted to kind of examine them um, sort of through masks or through playing roles. And so one of the periods that, that, that I set the poems in was this, this cafe culture of Paris in the 1890s uh, with the absinthe, which is, you know, awful, right? And because these are, the relationships are not cheery. A lot of them, they are the sort of thing. The reason we watch reality TV is to watch people mess up, right? So there are a <laughs> bunch of things, people messing up in these relationships. And I, I, there were other settings that I put them in. I, I worked with opera. Um, I worked with... Um, uh, I even used um, biblical, a little bit of biblical allusions. I did some Greek drama. Um, I, I have a found poem from um, uh, a scientific journal from the eight, from the seventeenth century. Um, so I just I just kind of played with them and and um, wanted to you know kind of tell these stories, but not face on full fledged reality. I wanted to I wanted to have a little bit of art and music and just kind of. I mean, the other thing is, of course, you know the great great opera, great art, great whatever, it's all about human drama. So right. it, felt, it felt really comfortable to inhabit a painting by Manet or comfortable to inhabit Madama Butterfly by Puccini. It, it felt like the, that worked for the subject matter. Yeah. All right, listeners, I am adding the book order info to the show notes. Never fear. We're going to move on to Catherine's third book of this pandemic era, a translation of Look at Him by Russia's Anna Serobinets, Russia's Stephen King. It's out from Three String Books. This memoir follows the author's loss of her unborn son to a fatal birth defect. And oh my gosh, what a moving and difficult but necessary book it is. We could easily spend a whole episode just discussing this book and your really beautiful translation of it. I don't know Russian. I've also read many awkward translations in my life. <laughs> and this, this was just gorgeous. It was very compelling for something that is uh, so emotional and just, again, so, so difficult. Uh, so you're an award-winning literary translator of the Russian language. This wasn't your first rodeo. How did you come to this project? So this is a really unusual project from this particular author. Anastar Binitz, as you mentioned, is known as Russia's Stephen King. She writes generally horror or young adult work. She's also a working journalist. So she does a lot of things to pay the bills. This particular book is a memoir, and she said... Uh, several times that she's not writing any other memoirs. Um, this, this is it. 
Um, and, and, this, and it's, this is it's, enough. <laughs> this is enough, right? It's actually been made into a hit play in Moscow and Petersburg. Um, I can't imagine. I have not seen the script, but I, I think that might be a project for me. Um, so it is the it, incredibly moving um, memoir told by a master storyteller uh, about her her pregnancy. The child has a, a fatal defect. It's, the technical name is bilateral multicystic dysplastic kidney. What that means is both of its of the child's kidneys filled up with cysts and they grew to five times the normal size um, and that filled up the stomach which means while the child is developing the lungs can't develop because the, the, the his stomach was full of these giant cysts these giant kidneys filled with cysts um, and um, sometimes children survive to birth but then they suffocate because they don't have the lungs when they're born so there is there is no there is no possible way to survive with this fatal birth defect. Um, and um, so the, the, the book tells the story of, first of all, the diagnosis, uh, which she has a hard time getting because the Russian medical system, uh, even for relatively privileged women like her, is um, not very woman friendly and uh, not very patient uh, oriented. And, um, and because of a lot of technicalities, she, the di diagnosis couldn't be made uh, until the 18th week of pregnancy, which was long past the legal limit for when abortions could be um, obtained in Russia. So then she had to figure out what to do. And um, it, the book was incredibly and remains incredibly controversial in Russia because she deals with um, uh, issues of women's, I mean, things that here we don't find quite as um, shocking, but there uh, questions of women's bodily functions, reproduction, um, and uh, the other thing that that may seem strange to readers in this part of the world is um, because of specifics to Russian culture, people are just told to suck up bad things. Just suck it up, right? You lost a baby, suck it up. You know, just, you know, you're feeling terrible, suck it up. And that's, that's a whole, that has to do with the trauma of Russia, you know, probably for millennia, but certainly for at least the last hundred years. Uh, where people suffered so badly in the Second World War, where people suffered so badly under the Soviet system, right? So you just you just suck it up. And the other thing that's hard for people here to maybe understand is because of the Soviet system, because they didn't have um, um, uh, adequate, uh, shall we say, consumer services, women didn't have access to contraception. Contraception was abortion during the Soviet oh. period. So for these women now, their mothers may have had four or five or six or seven, however many abortions, right? And then suddenly the whole situation changed in 2003. The Russian Orthodox Church came out very strongly against abortion and it was limited to the first 12 weeks. So you have this incredible societal revolution where people, all of everybody had abortions because they had no choice unless they wanted a dozen children, right? Then in, within a generation, abortion was pretty much impossible for people like Anna Starobinets, who was discovered to have a problem in the 18th week of pregnancy. Wow. So, so, so putting out this book, talking about her body and her diagnosis and the way the doctors treated her, uh, which was not, not good. Um, mm -hmm. And then her, when she, you know, she terminated the pregnancy in Germany and the Germans said, oh, go back and get counseling. And she just laughed at them because there were no counseling resources in Russia. And so the second part of the book is a really moving discussion of um, her trauma, her family's trauma, their inability to get counseling, their inability to find support. And then, so she, then she put on her journalist hat and she's like, I'm gonna find out you know, what can be done about this and I'm going to expose the people who did this to me and the system that was so dehumanizing and I'm gonna move forward. So in that sense, this is a really affirmative um, book, but it's not been, I mean, some people have thought it is just groundbreaking. And then a lot of other people in Russia think it's just vile. They hate it. And they, and, they, and she's received incredible amounts of hatred because of putting this out. Well, did you have any reservations about taking on the project in part because of how it was received in Russia? Or did that actually excite you or intrigue you? <laughs> I have a, a, apparently a habit, as, at least with my translation projects, of choosing projects that have to do with human rights or, you know, witness or whatever it is. Um, and so I clearly this is up, you know, it was just one of the, it was sitting out there waiting for me. I, I, a friend of mine had written a review of it in English 
and I thought I've got to check this book out. And um, it, it is, it, I know it sounds, it's a book about a fatal birth defect and abortion and misery and trauma. And why would you want to spend months with it? And you know, why, why would you want to even read it, right? She's such a marvelous writer. And even though the, the character of Anna in the book is maybe not always courageous, this writer is always courageous. It is a book that you just knocks you in the face and said, you have to read this book and you have to keep reading. It is a, people tell me they pick it up, you know, at seven o'clock at night and they stay up all night reading because it's so compelling. And I think probably anybody who I, I, has experienced a pregnancy for sure, but I, I think, I think probably any woman, right? And I hope also the men in their lives, their partners um, can, ha can relate to this. You know, what do you do when you wake up and you discover that this life plan that you had set up for the next 20 years, you know, to have this child, right? And it's all gone because your child is not going to survive birth. And furthermore, whatever you do, the child is going to die and probably in excruciating pain. So uh -huh. what do you do? Yeah, I, I don't have children. I've never been pregnant, but I really, even as an American born and raised woman, still really related to her journey <laughs> uh, with pain and also with dismissal, just disrespect from medical professionals. I think I've heard uh, friends and read about similar experiences from many women before. Just our pain is not uh, respected. It's not regarded in the same. It's not taken seriously, uh, even here in the United States. <laughs> when we did the book launch, we did a, a very cool online book launch with Anna Sarabinitz in Moscow. And I was here and we had a discussant in, in, the, in the UK and and we had the host way out on the West Coast. So all these people came together to discuss this. And one of the people in the audience spoke up to tell her story. Uh, I think she'd had the pregnancy here when mm -hmm. she felt exactly as dehumanized. And she had a similar situation. The child was not going to survive. And the she felt that the medical situation here, uh, hierarchy here in the States, treated her just as badly as Anna Sarbinets had been treated in Russia. I think this, this is a huge question of how women are perceived, mm -hmm. how women are over-medicated, how women are, um, you know, our pain is diminished. And it's, it's a huge, it's, I wanted to, to, to bring this book out because I thought it was a particularly interesting lens for American women to look at abortion. Right, because for us, so many, so much of it is about dogma. It is you are a baby killer, or 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 the opposite, right? Um, and what do you do in this case? It's it's a small number of people. It may be you know a few thousand a year when you are confronted with the fact that your child will not survive. What is best for you? What is best mm -hmm. for that child? And to simply say God says you have to bring it to term. Well, I don't know what in what universe what god would say a child has to suffer as badly as to be born and suffocate you right. know i mean they're, they're just it's the moral issues about around abortion are not cut and dried they are mm -hmm. really complex and i really wanted to to tell you know i wanted to at least allow people to think outside the box on this issue and i i hoped and i still hope that it will have something to say to people who feel they already know everything they need to know about abortion in this country. Yeah, actually, on the note of dogma, I was very impressed with your translations of the internet forums that Anna mentioned. Could you talk about what these forums are and what your process to, in terms of translating terms like preggy-weggy <laughs> and some of the other uh, sort of baby talk or other terms that came up surrounding motherhood and pregnancy in these internet forums? So the first thing I should say, of course, is the, the action of the book took place in 2012. So okay. the, the world is, you know, I mean, but these are basically chat rooms where people get on and, um, Starobinets goes to a, some great lengths to distinguish between Russian chat rooms and American uh, forums for people who have who have children who have have diagnoses like hers, um, and um, 
I think she in many ways sort of idealizes what she thinks is happening in America and that we are all civil to one another in these forums. Yeah. But it's, uh, you know, in, in Russia, um, I guess they, they're not, they, at least in 2012, they were not doing a good job of filtering out trolls. And people get on there and they just, you know, scream out these women and tell them, you know, that they ought to be boiled in lie and that they, you know, ought to be dismembered for even thinking about abortion because it's against God's will, blah, 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 blah. Um, but in terms of the actual language of what was used um, in, the, in the chat rooms, it was very colloquial in the Russian and I was looking for colloquial in English. The term preggy-weggy, which is one that just gave me fits, there is a particular um, uh, social grouping in Russia that we don't really have here of uh, generally wealthier or better off women who infantilize their pregnancies and they walk around in pink overalls, according to Anastar Bainitz, and they just talk in little itsy bitsy baby terms about being a mom and you know how cool that is. And they talk baby talk to their stomachs and all that sort of thing. But it's not, I mean, we do that too, right? But this is over the top fetishizing of the pregnancy. <laughs> and I was trying to find a way, there's a, the, the Russian term is not preggy weggy, but I was trying to find right. a way to, you know, get that sense of just too cute, like too cute by a lot into the term. And, and I, and, and I just really couldn't, I worked, I, I have a whole list of the terms that I tried, you know, to kind of convey that, that sickly sweet cuteness and preggy weggy was the best I could do. Um, <laughs> but, but I mean, you know, that's, that is translation, right? It's like listening. It's like, listening for not just what the meaning of the word is, but the tone in which it's spoken mm -hmm. and the, um, the, the group around, you know, the, the language that people are using. I mean, all of us speak, you know, like we speak differently to our children than we do to say our bosses or then we speak Hopefully. differently to the people, <laughs> right, right. The people like our workout buddies, right. We speak differently to them. Right. But so, so, so translation is trying to cue into that too. It's like, well, to whom is she speaking and what is one of the undertones of the words. Um, and so that was a, a really fun challenge with this book as well. It was, you know, the different, um, different, um, what they call, it's called register, right? The different registers that the different speakers are, are using the official doctor speak in the old Soviet terminology. And then uh, the more modern doctor speak in the German hospital where she ends up and, and you know, just trying to get all of that straight. But I, I should say also the Starbinitz herself, is such a clear and uh, just almost like a crystal clear, clear writer. And it was just a joy to channel her tone writing through the book. She was, and she's funny. She's really funny. And yeah. sometimes at really inappropriate moments, <laughs> like she's waiting in the hospital to, to have her abortion. And she, she has to, she just can't, you know, she just can't sit still. So she turns on the only movie that she can get access to, which is a, a musical version of The Three Musketeers. And there's a little song that they sing. It's a Russian film. And there's this little song they sing about, you know, riding along on their horses and going off to battle. And I had to translate that. I had to make it rhyme. I had to catch the notion of these, you know, guys with the, the, the feathers in their caps, right? Riding off on their horses. And I, the actual translation in English is fairly, fairly far distant from what the actual words are in Russian. But my hope is that it captured the spirit of these guys riding up on their horses and this woman staring at them, knowing that she's going to have an abortion. Her baby is dying. And then, then you know, and she says later on, she, she will never be able to watch that movie again. You know, she, she can't yeah. ever hear that song again when it's a standard in children's, you know, one of those classic children's movies. And she has to leave the room forever after whenever she hears that song. So catching all of that is, that's been a lot of, it was a lot of, a great challenge and a lot of fun. Yeah, I thought you also, again, not having any sense of the original, I thought you did an excellent job of distinguishing between the German and the Russian doctors and just how slight differences in language could make all the difference in terms of conveying empathy to a patient and to her, her spouse or other partner. Uh, I was curious about that approach, how how much did you have to battle with words in the English translation to convey those differences? Well, I think you put your fingers early, finger on the situation earlier. It's much harder to do colloquial speech or like what a troll would write in a chat room or to, or to render a song appropriately or a rhyme. A rhyme is always tough, right? Some kind of lingo, right? But actually, the actual 
interaction with medical personnel, um, she was, it, 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 that wasn't hard because she was mm-hmm. very clear in her Russian in rendering, you know, the way the Soviet style doctors, the Russian doctors spoke to her versus the way the Germans, you know, and because that was part of her, you know, overall plan to distinguish between the two types of medical practice, right? Um, she, she very intentionally, it's a memoir, right? Mm-hmm. And yet there is a master writer making this work and all of her choices are intentional. So um, in that sense, you know, you, you kind of, I mean, you trust your author to guide right. you and you'd catch the tone of the author. And I, and that, so that wasn't me, that was her. And it's, I mean, if I've done it right, I've done it right. Right. Um, one thing about this book, which is unusual about in my translation work is for various reasons, um, I had a little bit longer. And so I was able to read every single word aloud, not just once, but twice. And I mean, that's, you know, that's a gift to a translator um, because you can, hearing it is different from just seeing it on your screen. And frankly, if you see it on your screen, you worked with the book for, you know, eight, 10 months, right? You're not seeing it on your screen. So to (laughs) read it aloud and and to to hear the language um, and to listen for her voice in that, um, that was just a gift on this book. And I I really am so proud of this book because um, I feel like it, I feel like it did what I wanted it to do uh, as a translation. Um, and so that was really exciting. Yeah, you've already touched on a lot of things, but do you think that there's anything else about the story that might surprise our feminist, mostly American-based listeners? So, yeah, because, well, first of all, there's a huge fight in Russia about what feminis- feminism is and whether one wants to be part of it. And that's also specific to the culture because in the Soviet period, um, there was official equality between, between the sexes. Uh, in practice though, that meant that the women went home and did all the domestic work in addition to you know, doing whatever they were doing professionally. Mm-hmm. So when the Soviet Union ended, there was um, almost a social revolution and the sort of feminism of women and even before they ended the, of, the so, of the Soviet period, the notion of being, fe- not feminism, but feminine, the notion of, mm-hmm. of, of you know, short skirts and high heels and, you know, all, I mean, it was amazing because Moscow is, in particular, is, which is the city I know best, is, is a major metropolis. It's got a metro and not many people had um, cars, at least at the end of the Soviet period. And you'd see these women walking down the street in their stiletto heels, which of course were mangled by the cobblestones, right? And this whole notion of how you had to, it was, it was in some ways, almost a rebellion against the greatness of the Soviet period. You dress yourself up, you wear high heels, you look feminine and not like a a robot, not like a a female robot, right? So there was this period when everything feminine was was being, you know, pushed. And and in the 90s, there were job ads in the the Russian papers. There were jobs for men, there were jobs for women. and now those kids, there were little kids then, they, that's this generation, right? Anastar Binitz. And, and so they are really finding their way in the world and trying to figure out, you know, what does it mean? Because for a lot of them, making it means getting married to a rich guy who will let you sit home in luxury and you don't have to go out and work. So this is like totally different from the American context. And, um, so when you read this book or when I read this book, one of the, so my generation of American writers, um, women writers, we were pretty much always told, don't write about motherhood. Don't write about women's stuff. If you want to be taken seriously in the world of poetry or letters. Right. And I remember sitting in an MFA classroom as late as maybe 2010, having a serious discussion with other women about, should we ever submit our work to a prize that's only available to women? Because if you win that prize, that's automatically you're ghettoizing your work. That's the wrong term, but I'm trying to think of the right. You, you are, you are, you are labeling your work as um, uh, somehow less mm-hmm. than, than if you had won a prize competing against men. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's not that long ago. And this book uh, there's a lot, and, and a lot, it's not just this book, but a lot of the Russian women whom I translate, there is, um, 
a much greater openness and softness about being moms and about, about family relationships. And in this book, um, there is a real willingness for the character, Anna, um, the voice in the book to be just a total, I don't know, she falls apart. She right. lets it all hang out. She is sometimes whiny. She is needy. Um, and, and I would be too if I, were, if I had lost a child under those circumstances. But, but I would probably have also not written about that. <laughs> I, would not, I would not have wanted to put that out for people. And that's one of the criticisms of the book is that she put it all out there. And it's not accepted in the Russian um, context. So I think for American feminists, um, maybe the thing to think about is, is, you know, maybe her choices seem conventional or not as progressive as we might advocate for, but it's with, you have to think about it within that larger context of being told to stifle yourself, to not show pain, to not show fear, and the choice she made to show all of those things, ugly and uncomfortable as they may be for us in reading about them. I mean, it's, it's a tremendously brave book. And, and in that sense, I think it's really feminist, even though some of the attitudes and the conventional notions of what men and women do, um, may, we may not find uh, parts of our, uh, we may not find much relevance to parts of our lives, but that's what's interesting about translation, right? It's reading about other people. Right. Um, you know, and the other thing I'll say about translation, then I'll get off my high horse about it. But <laughs> in this country, we only have about 700 books published in translation in any given year. Last year, from the Russian, great Russian literature, we had 48 books published in translation, and nine of them were republishing, republications of, tra of like classic literature like Pushkin or Lermontov or whatever. So we were talking, <laughs> we're talking under 40 books, and of, of those under 40 books, only eight of them were written by women. So we are not, and, and, and that's the statistic that's pretty standard. Roughly 70% of that tiny number of books that would get published in English in translation, roughly 70% are written by male European writers. We are not hearing the voices of women. We are not hearing the voices of people of color in many countries. We are not hearing the voices of people who are differently abled. We are we're not hearing from Russia where, where um, queerness is still criminalized, we are often not hearing those voices. So uh, there's a lot of the world that we're not hearing. And so, I mean, to be able to bring a book like this, you know, one of the eight or nine books published in English by a Russian woman, and there are so many wonderful Russian women writers, um, you know, it's just, it's a miracle. It's, it's a small miracle. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Catherine. That's all the time we have, folks. Thanks for listening to the Badass Lady Folk Podcast. I'm your host, Christine Sloan Stoddard. You can find out more about me at worldofchristinestoddard.com and more about Quail Bell Press and Productions at quailbell.com. Again, find so many links in the show notes. Tune in next time. Mm -hmm.